Fun fact, when I was 12, I too won a jitterbug dancing contest. Hey there, and welcome to Post Credits with Gil Garcia, where we're going beyond the final scene of David Lynch's cult classic, Mulholland Drive. Here we go, guys. We have a real doozy of an episode on tap for today. Mulholland Drive is a psychological mystery thriller that is a rabbit hole of theories, interpretations, and metaphors. I want to give a huge shout out to Rick and Steven for suggesting this movie to me. This is a movie with a tremendous reputation for being one of the finest works of art of the 21st century, but also seen as an incoherent mishmash of vignettes and pretentiousness. (laughs) This episode very well can be 45 minutes to an hour long because of the dearth of theories, information, and plot threads we are going to go over today. So we're going to change up the formula a little bit today. If you're a new listener... The show is like this. It's divided into three segments. We have Act 1, Expectations, where I explain my relationship with the film, whether or not I've seen it before. Act 2 comes in the middle of the episode, where I talk about my spoiler-free review. We break down the movie by highlighting the strengths and call attention to the weaknesses of the film. And then Act 3, we go beyond the final scene, where we discuss behind-the-scenes filmmaking factoids, critical reception, and audience reactions. On new release episodes, like Argyle next week, for example, I also have a post credit spoiler discussion after the third act so that people who want to watch the movie can stay relatively spoiler-free, then come back to the episode after they've seen the film and discuss all the plot points. But we're not going to do the post credit spoiler talk. The whole episode is chock-full of spoilers today, We need to go over every plot detail of this film because it needs to be discussed. There's no way of reviewing this film without talking about some of the things we see on screen here. (laughs) This is a Pandora's box of alliteration and allegories. But today's episode, we're also going to take Act 2 a bit deeper. We're going to be splitting Act 2 a bit as well and going into three subgenres of analysis. The first is going to be the literal interpretation of the film, examining the film based on the actions of the characters on screen and discussing what is the surface-level story being told here. The second is the metaphysical aspect of the story, diving into the supernatural aspects of the film that could stray into being nonsensical or corporeal. Some people may think these are plot holes or irrelevant to the core story, but I beg to differ, and that's where the metaphysical analysis will come in. And then finally, we get into the theoretical aspect of the film, taking what we've seen and learned from the literal and the metaphysical aspects of the film and combine them into speculation behind the meaning of what David Lynch is trying to portray here. And as you can tell, this episode may not be a straightforward review per se, but more like a dissection into what I think the movie is about. So for the sake of diversity on today's show, this episode may be one of my best exercises of film school knowledge, or a complete debauchery of my brain's ability to make coherent allegorical connections. (laughs) We'll see. Now, in my movie-watching process, I carry around a notepad, and I jot down things of interest or plot points that I want to talk about on my podcast. Most movies like Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom or Mean Girls end up being about three pages long. 
I mostly just write little tidbits and things that I enjoyed about the film, things that I've noticed, Easter eggs, and plot points and scenes that I really think stand out. To showcase how serious and detailed I went with my research for Mulholland Drive, the notes I took went approximately 13 pages. Six while I was watching the movie, then another seven based on film theory and forums that I've been studying up on after seeing the film. It is a challenge, I tell you what. So, without further ado, let's get into Act 1, My Expectations. After a car wreck on the winding Mulholland Drive renders a woman amnesiac, she and a perky Hollywood hopeful search for clues and answers across Los Angeles in a twisting venture beyond dreams and reality. Mulholland Drive is written and directed by Academy Award recipient David Lynch, known for Blue Velvet, Dune, Twin Peaks, and Inland Empire. The film stars Naomi Watts as Betty, Laura Herring as Rita, and Justin Thoreau as Adam Kesher. Now, what makes this episode special to me is the fact that I've never seen this movie before. In fact, I want to take the time to retract a statement I made last week during my Beekeeper episode, where I called this film an erotic thriller. Prior to watching the movie, the biggest impression I had of it was of the infamous lesbian sex scene between Naomi Watts and Laura Herring. Outside of the two scenes in the film where the two women are making love, which are extremely passionate and emotional to the story, there isn't any gratuitous violence or nudity. But that's how far removed from the story I was before I sat down to watch it. I thought of it as an erotic thriller, just based on impressions that I've heard on the streets and what I've seen online. However, I wasn't completely blind to the works of David Lynch, though. In film school, one of the best lessons we learned was the use of colors to represent hidden meanings and emotions in film. To exemplify this lesson, my professor used the film Blue Velvet, another corporeal mystery film from David Lynch's filmography. His use of the color blue was a juxtaposition to concrete evidence. It signified the change of state of a person's psyche and physical presence. The ramifications that they are about to undergo something important. Kind of foreshadowing. We'll talk about the color blue in Mulholland Drive later on during this show, but having watched Blue Velvet in film school, it gave me a taste of what to expect out of this movie. Lynch's filmmaking art style is definitely high art. Some may even call it pretentious, but it's evident that as a director, his ability to use striking imagery to evoke unsettling feelings or emotions is why he is so highly controversial and polarizing to audiences. With his honorary Academy Award in 2020, it was clear that as a filmmaker, he left his imprint on the industry, influencing so many other pieces of media, whether you knew it or not. Here are some examples of video games, films, television shows that you have probably watched or played that have been inspired by the works of David Lynch. True Detective, Stranger Things, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Black Swan, Melancholia, Alan Wake, Control, Disco Elysium, Silent Hill, Deadly Premonition, Gone Home, the list goes on and on. Now, of course, many of those titles may be more suitable for modern mass audiences, such as Stranger Things especially, but nevertheless, they have Lynchian footprints all over them. A film doesn't necessarily have to be creepy or horror-related to have his DNA all over it. 
it's the constructive use of narrative fragmentation, color striking, and abstract surrealism that makes these other works of art similar to Lynch. I started this rabbit hole through the mind of the visionary filmmaker when I decided to replay the Remedy video games, Alan Wake and Control. Each of these games have very distinct atmospheres and narrative choices. Alan Wake is a missing persons mystery where a novelist discovers that the book he is writing is coming true and causing the world around him to undergo cataclysmic World Altering events. Control, which is set in the same universe as Alan Wake, is about a woman investigating the disappearance of her brother in a government building known as the Oldest House. There, she discovers that the oldest house in the Federal Bureau of Control is a sector of the United States government that handles paracausal anomalies. While Alan Wake set in a fictional town in the Pacific Northwest, Control is set in a drab governmental building in New York. They both contain series of vignettes that build the world that they are in, cluing us into the mystery surrounding our heroes. Alan Wake's video games are predominantly are masked in navy blue, since the game is set in the wilderness of the state of Washington, while Control uses an abundance of a striking red color. The direct symbolism, art style, and direction of these games is as close as we're ever going to get to a Stephen King or David Lynch video game, and I absolutely love them for that. They are emblematic of the kinds of storytelling that Lynch is known for, an open-ended, puzzle box, mindfuck of a journey that will confuse you, leaving you wanting answers. Then, when you get close and you think you have it all figured out, they make you second-guess yourself. Very few movies have ever made me feel the way that this one did, and the anticipation to record this episode has been well worth the wait in my opinion. But that's enough gushing and anticipation. I think it's time we get to the real meat of the episode and dissect this sucker. Let's get to Act 2, the review of Mulholland Drive. Now, as I sat down to write this script on Wednesday, I felt nervous and not quite confident in what I wanted to say about Mulholland Drive. It was approximately 50 minutes or so after I watched the movie when I sat at my computer desk and began contemplating how I can properly express every idea and question I had about this movie. Staring at the blank Microsoft Word document that I had just loaded up, I got as far as writing the title of the film on the page, then closing out of the application entirely. I knew I needed more time to think about this. I was not ready. I knew I needed to watch some videos, read some articles, Line up the answers I thought I knew with some of the opinions of folks that have seen the movie dozens of times. From the minute the credits rolled, I instinctively felt like this was going to be a movie that will sit with me for a while, even beckoning me to rewatch it from the beginning. The movie manifested in my brain like an earworm, a song that you hear once on the radio that gets stuck in your head all week, and I couldn't quite wrap my head around some of the things that were presented on screen. It left me in shambles thinking, what the fuck did I just watch? (laughs) But to get the answers I sought, the first step for me was to consider the literal actions presented on the screen, take what I saw at a surface level, and begin to paint the picture for myself. And here's what I got. Let's talk about the literal aspect of the film. The film opens on a surrealist shot of a group of jitterbug dancers jumbling across a blue screen. The shots dissolve and are overlaid over each other as a vibrant, happy 1950s swing dance song plays. Before we leave the scene, 
The scene dissolves one more time on a radiating, happy Naomi Watts, smiling as a bright light shines in her face. The next thing we know, we are high above the hills of Hollywood, where Laura Herring is in a limousine going somewhere important. She calls to the driver that she doesn't know why they're stopping the limousine, as the driver turns around and points a gun at her. Simultaneously, there are two reckless drunk drivers heading straight at them, and the parties fatally crash into each other. Within the first five minutes, we are clued into a very straightforward story. A girl, Naomi Watts' Betty, arrives in Hollywood to pursue her dreams of acting. She is vibrant and optimistic and very bright-eyed about the city. Then we have Laura Herring on the other hand. Naively, she breaks into Betty's temporary apartment, having narrowly survived the car accident, forgetting who she is. Here we are given the idea that Betty is invited from a Canadian town to audition for a big role while her aunt is allowing her to stay. Laura takes on the name Rita and subconsciously is cautious about someone looking for her. The basic premise becomes Betty wants to help Rita remember who she is. Simple enough, right? Well, the film begins cutting between three storylines simultaneously. The first is Rita and Betty. The second is the studio dilemma that Adam Kesher finds himself in. And the third is of a bumbling hitman. Adam Kesher, played by Justin Thoreau, is in a battle of wits in a boardroom meeting with a couple of lawyers and studio execs. Shout out to Dan Hedaya, by the way. (laughs) Haven't seen that guy in a film in a minute. The standstill in the boardroom comes from a disagreement that they all have over an actress named Camilla Rhodes. Adam refuses to cast Camilla Rhodes in the film, while the lawyers and executives are strong-arming him. Seemingly related to Adam, we cut to two men in an office laughing about a car accident and how the car accident never happened. One of the men is laughing about it, while the other is looking suspiciously at a black book that's on the desk between them. The man standing up looking at the black book then shoots the man that was laughing at the desk and then proceeds to loot the book before he realizes the bullet he used to shoot the guy went right through the wall and hit a woman in the room next door, leading to some hijinks where he then has to try and silence the woman that he shot on accident and then have to kill the janitor that saw him try to silence the woman. It's a pretty hilarious scene altogether and it's going to be pretty important later on. Throughout the runtime of the film, we bounce between these stories, discovering a lead that will connect Rita to a woman she once knew named Diane. Adam, after refusing to cast Camilla, walks in on his wife cheating on him, gets beaten and thrown out of his house. Then he gets strong-armed by a man named The Cowboy into retracting his choice of actress. Here, Rita and Betty's sexual relationship really begins to take shape after Betty nails an audition where everyone except the casting director loves her performance. For helping her prepare for the audition, Betty agrees to help Rita trace their lead. While breaking into Diane's apartment, Rita and Betty find Diane's rotting corpse. Apparently, Diane has been dead for weeks. After a foreboding threat from a neighbor, Rita and Betty agree to disguise Rita's appearance to keep her safe. That night, the two consummate their relationship and the two women make love. The scene is so beautifully shot with the powerful swell of the score and Betty exclaims that she is in love with Rita. The love scene then transitions to what is the most important moment of the movie, the aspect of the movie where most people believe it goes off the rails. 
Rita wakes up in the dead of night, 2 a.m. to be exact, screaming the word silencio. She then tells Betty that there's somewhere they have to go. Now, I believe, is as good of a time as any to transition to the next point of the review. Let's talk about the metaphysical. The Club Silencio scene represents a transition point in the movie. It begins to blur the lines between the irrelevant shots that we have seen throughout the first act and call into question more abstract ideas. I mentioned earlier on in this episode that Lynch uses the color blue as a presentation of secrets and change. At Club Silencio, the two women experience a stage play where a magician monologues about existence being a recording and that everything is a lie. Inside the theater, the lights strike from red to blue and we see a blue-haired woman overlook the stage. A woman in a red dress steps to the microphone and sings a haunting rendition of Crying by Roy Orbison. She collapses before the song is over, indicating that the performance was pre-recorded. Fake. Betty and Rita begin to cry as there seems to be a shift in their presence, like the two women are beginning to realize that their love affair is fake and it's coming to an end. The women venture back to the apartment where this mystery begins to unravel before our eyes. Rita, wearing a wig similar to Betty's hairdo, reaches into their closet to grab a purse of money that they had stashed at the beginning of the film. As she turns back to the bed to account for the money, Betty disappears off screen. At this point, my mind was blown. Was Betty a figment of Rita's mind the entire time? Is she the amalgamation of a past life that Rita had before the car crash? Lynch doesn't give us those answers so clearly. The plot threads intersect very quickly and incoherently here. We see a shot of the men at the diner at the beginning of the movie, the hobo behind the winkies, Adam directing a film with Rita, giving his assistant director a lesson on how to direct how two actors should kiss, Betty waking up in Diane's apartment. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> Now, prior to these final 30 minutes, I think the movie did a pretty good job of keeping things nice and tidy together for people to follow along in a literal sense. By now, audiences would have forgotten about the shots of the two detectives at the car accident, Dan mentioning his dream in the Winkies, and the opening shot of the camera diving into a pillow. Those shots, as singular and insignificant as they seemed at the time, turn out to be huge clues into the real meaning behind this film. We never really know who the main protagonist of the story is because it is shifted between three main unreliable narrators, Betty, Rita, and Adam. And these lines blur even further when Betty and Rita begin to refer to each other as Diane and Camilla, names that we've heard throughout the middle act of the movie. Camilla is the name of the actress that Adam didn't want in the leading role of his movie. And Diane was the woman Rita was trying to find when she was suffering from amnesia. Spoiler alert if you're planning to watch this film with fresh eyes. Before we begin to tie the loose strings together, we get strong implications that Diane and Camilla are the actual names of Betty and Rita. The shots we see of them in the final 30 minutes aren't imaginary. They are the literal present day retelling of their story. You see... Diane and Camilla are actually co-stars in a film together, working under director Adam Kesher. Diane exposes this truth in a scene where the two women are arriving at a Hollywood engagement party. Diane and Camilla fell in love, but jealousy and hatred began to sour their relationship when Camilla's career began to take off without Diane. 
it even went as far as Camilla engaging in a love affair with Adam. Diane begins to see Camilla as a casting couch actress, the kind to sleep their way to the top. Camilla not only breaks off her relationship with Diane, but she embellishes in Diane's pain, inviting her to an engagement party between her and Adam, where she relishes it by kissing another woman in front of her. At this engagement party, we see shots of the cowboy, Coco, who was the apartment manager, and the fake Camilla Rhodes. This will become important in a bit. Diane's life begins to tailspin, and we see her at the Winkies Diner meeting with the inept hitman from the first act of the movie. Here, we see her put a hit on Camilla for embarrassing her at the engagement party. The hitman tells her that if he is successful, she will receive a blue key at her apartment. No details will be revealed to her, but she will know that the job is done. Diane the next day violently cries and masturbates as she finds the blue key on her coffee table. She knows what she's done. A few final remaining shots conclude with Diane haunted by the two elderly folks from her arrival in Los Angeles that leads her to bed when she pulls out a gun from her bedside table and then shoots herself. The final seconds of the film transitions from the terrifying hobo outside of Winkies to a beautifully terrifying dissolve of Diane and Camilla, beloved and adored, overlaid with a shot of Sunset Boulevard. We close with the final image being the woman in the blue hair at the club whispering Silencio as we fade to black. Silencio representing that we had these two bright stars of Hollywood forever silenced by their actions. Now that we have a general idea of the plot and the important insert shots, it's time we talk about the theoretical component of Mulholland Drive, the aspect that makes this movie a timeless classic and one that people are still debating over to this day. This movie really sat with me for a few days, especially when I revisited some of my favorite moments of the movie. The final seconds alone are masterful pieces of filmmaking, everything from the score to the way that it's shot, the dissolve, it's beautiful how it's done. So what does this all mean? Besides the literal reasons and actions of Diane, this film is a cautionary tale about the horrors of the Hollywood dream, the sexual abuse, the corruption, the machine that chews up and spits out the hopeful and optimistic. Let's begin to dissect the elements of the movie with the cowboy and Adam Kesher. The cowboy, he only appears in three scenes in the movie. He's never given a name or a position of power in the Hollywood executive hierarchy, yet he has Adam terrified of what he can do, telling him that if he and Adam see each other two more times, there will be a problem. Fortunately for Adam, they're only shown in the same location one more time, the engagement party. The cowboy, in the metaphysical sense, is Hollywood. He represents a side of the filmmaking machine that can't be bargained with, reasoned with, or negotiated against. Hollywood decides who makes it and who doesn't. He even presents a throwaway line about the fate of Camilla Rhodes not being Adams to make. It's a bit of foreshadowing of what is to happen between the two women. Let's now talk about the hobo, the one and only jump scare in the film and possibly the most iconic gif you'll see from Mulholland Drive. The hobo is presented in the first act when Dan theorizes a horrific dream he had at the Winkies Diner. He believes he will be followed to the back of the diner where this horrible face will greet him. In the closing moments of the film, we see the hobo again after Diane kills herself. 
They begin to appear in a blue light and then it dissolves to the city skyline. I believe that the hobo is a literal representation of the destruction of the Hollywood dream, the person that people become when they fail, a visual representation of the depths a person will go to achieve success. Diane couldn't live with their failures, thus becoming the hobo in the closing minutes of the movie. So what do these themes mean in the context of the film's sporadic jump cutting? I spoke briefly about the movie opening with the camera panning across a room and down onto a pillow. These depictions of Betty and Rita are all delusions of Diane's. They are a pure representation of her fantasy life with the woman she loved, where they meet by coincidence and Betty becomes a highly coveted, highly successful Hollywood star. In this dream, she believes that Camilla Rhodes doesn't deserve the role that she earned, even projecting the waitress at the engagement party onto the name Camilla Rhodes. She needed Adam to get strong-armed into hiring her. She also believes that Adam Kesher is an incompetent filmmaker with an inferiority complex in his personal life. She also thinks that the hitman she hired to murder Camilla was a bumbling idiot incapable of doing the job she hired him for. This is a way of her deflecting the guilt she feels about putting out the hit for Camilla. Some theoretical beliefs take this dream a step further, and they divulge it into an examination of the process of Hollywood filmmaking and extortion. Camilla is the casting couch, a mere hope that Diane can cling on to to get to the top of Hollywood stardom, a shortcut of sorts. The hitman, being a trafficker, bringing in new and optimistic talent, then taking them out to pasture when they've passed their use. Silencio represents a clue into the idea that this whole industry is a facade of false idolization and presentation. There's still so much to unpack with this movie that I could spend probably another hour indulging into the physical objects used throughout the movie. The blue cube, the key, the hat box, the waitress's name tag. But I think it's time that I get to my final verdict for Mulholland Drive. If you wish to discuss this film more, Please follow the show on social media. I'm on Instagram and X with the username PC with Gil, one word. After all the research, all the expectations, the references, the hype, as you say, I have to give Mulholland Drive a resounding five out of five. It quite possibly can make its way onto my top 20 films of all time. I haven't felt this affected by a film since I watched Christopher Nolan's Memento. I really do feel like I'll be re-watching this film every year going forward. Mulholland Drive is a masterclass of non-linear storytelling and puzzle box narrative, capped off by extremely intricately laced allegorical techniques and shots. There's a reason why David Lynch was nominated for Best Director for this film at the 2002 Academy Awards, and there's a reason why it's regarded as the best film he's ever made. And there's also a reason why it's so polarizing in the court of public opinion. This movie will challenge you and make you think outside of the box. If you go into it with an open mind and focus, I'm sure you'll want to revisit it multiple times as well. And that will do it for my review of Mulholland Drive. We have one final segment to go over until it's Silencio for the week. This is Act 3, Beyond the Final Scene. As I hinted before, Mulholland Drive is an Academy Award and Golden Globe nominated film, earning accolades for Lynch as a writer and director, and also accrediting Angelo Badalamenti for his beautiful haunting score. 
On Rotten Tomatoes, Mulholland Drive lands at 84% certified fresh. The critic consensus says, David Lynch's dreamlike and mysterious Mulholland Drive is a twisty neo-noir with an unconventional structure that features a mesmerizing performance from Naomi Watts as a woman on the dark fringes of Hollywood. Audiences who use the website score the film at 87% fresh as well, with a super reviewer on the website quoted as saying, Mulholland Drive has to be the best Lynch film. It has everything that makes some of his other films not so good, but here it just works. In fact, it works extremely well. It is, of course, hard to describe, but if you haven't seen it, then seriously get this movie into your eyeballs. A rare, unforgettable, and deliciously weird experience. Truly entrancing. Normally, when I give you guys positive reviews of a film, I like to balance them out with some negative reviews. This is the part where I normally highlight those differencing opinions. But I'm going to save you some time by not reiterating a lot of the homophobic and intensely radical conservative reviews I saw on the website. There's some nasty stuff that people have written about this movie on there. However, there is a singular one-star review that I think is worth noting, and it highlights how polarizing this movie can be for the casual audience. Max V writes, This movie actually sucks. I hate that the plot twist was, Oh wow, none of it was even real. What a great feeling trying to figure out what the hell is going on for two hours, only to have the classic, she was just crazy trope thrown at you. Only good part was the Spanish version of Crying by Roy Orbison. Otherwise, garbage. I think this review is a clear example of someone who misunderstood the final hour of the film, and they kind of interpreted it their own way. Because after all, that's what Lynch was aiming for. You take from the film what you want, but if you dive deeper, you'll find something more meaningful. Max here dismisses the film as being just a stereotypical crazy person twist, but there's a lot more at play here. It's a very surface-level observation that he gives, but emblematic of some of the other reviewers that I've seen online. Let's now get to the final portion of Act 3. Let's dive into some filmmaking factoids. The first factoid is one that is so strangely relevant to the subject matter of Mulholland Drive. Naomi Watts actually lost health insurance and faced eviction from her apartment shortly after filming for this movie Wrapped. She was ready to quit acting and leave Los Angeles, but her close friend Nicole Kidman talked her into staying until after this film was released. Good call there by Nicole Kidman. <laughs> to follow up that last one, here's a particularly interesting note of the fabulous Naomi Watts. On a particularly bad day of auditioning in Hollywood, before she landed the role in Mulholland Drive, Naomi Watts was driving along Mulholland Drive. She actually imagined herself turning the wheel and going over the edge to her death. After several years of getting nowhere and largely being ignored by casting directors, Watts was shocked that not only did director David Lynch meet her in person, but he asked her questions about herself and immediately she felt relaxed. It's hard to put into words, but perhaps maybe this movie saved Naomi Watts' life. This film is dedicated to Jennifer Syme, a young actress whose story is similar to that of the character of Betty, but who in fact died in a car accident after the bulk of the film was completed. She once worked as an assistant for David Lynch before her death. It's so horrifically coincidental. This next one comes straight from the man himself, David Lynch. 
He says, In this film, there are many objects that are blue, and even a character associated with the color blue. For example, there's a blue box, a blue key, a blue-haired lady with blue eyeshadow on, blue lights, blue walls, and blue smoke. The use of the color blue is used in significant ways in other Lynch films, such as Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, and Lost Highway. I mentioned the significance of blue earlier on in the film, and here David Lynch reiterates my point. During the scene where Betty convinces Rita to call the police and ask info about the car accident, Betty says to her, Come on, it'll be just like in the movies. We'll pretend to be someone else. This statement foreshadowed that the first and second acts of the film were an extended dream of Diane's. Diane's dream shows that she's trying to cope with her failed acting career and love life by escaping into a fantasy world and pretending to be another person through Betty Elms. Now for our final factoid. David Lynch himself has made it a point to affirm that there is a definitive plot and meaning to this film, unlike most of his other works, which are super ambiguous. He hasn't confirmed anyone's theories per se, but he has confirmed that someone out there has got it completely correct. Now before we wrap up the show, here's one final nugget for those of you who wish to watch this film for yourself. Here are David Lynch's 10 clues to unlocking Mulholland Drive. Number one, pay attention to the beginning of the film. There are at least two clues revealed before the credits. Number two, notice the appearances of the red lampshade. Number three, can you hear the title of the film that Adam Kesher is auditioning actresses for? Is it mentioned again? Pay attention to that. Number four, an accident is a terrible event. Notice the location of the accident. Number five, who gives a key and why? Number six, notice the robe, the ashtray, and the coffee cup. Number seven, what is felt, realized, and gathered at the Club Silencio? Number eight, did talent alone help Camilla? Number nine, notice the occurrences surrounding the man behind Winkies. And number 10, where is Aunt Ruth? Those are questions for you to ask yourself if you decide to watch Mulholland Drive. And that is it. What a crazy, beautiful, and bizarre little puzzle of a movie. One I will never forget. And one that I'm glad that I bought on 4K Blu-ray disc. Because I want to go back to this every year from here on out. I love this movie. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll be launching my first video on the YouTube page here shortly, so look out for the announcement when it goes live. Next week, I'll be reviewing the newest Matthew Vaughn action film, Argyle. So that's going to be it for me today. I think I'm going to go lie down for a bit. I'm a bit exhausted from this. This is a doozy of an episode, and it took a lot of time and research in order to get this done, and I'm so glad we're finally through it. I hope you guys have a great week, and as always... Go catch a movie.